And welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And before we get into it, I want everyone to know one thing. The only way this podcast is made possible is because Derek does his newsletter, Foreign Exchanges. So if you like what we're doing here and you want really in-depth understandings of what's going on in the world, please subscribe to Foreign Exchanges. We really uh, think it's I think it's one of the best things around, the best thing around, really. And without it, we can't do this. So, Derek, thank you for that. And from that... Thank you for saying that. And, uh, you know, I, I, I would not <laughs> say anything nice about myself because that would be bragging, but yeah, uh, pay attention to what Danny true. Said, um, <laughs> so why don't we start with polling in Turkey? Uh, yes. Yeah, so as uh, people know, Turkey is uh, coming up on a general election in May, uh, May 14th, I believe. Uh, the uh, Reuters reported uh, earlier this week on a few polls uh, that do not paint a very good picture for Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the incumbent president of Turkey, as he uh, heads into a re-election battle against the Republican People's Party leader, Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu. Uh there were three polls taken uh, that Reuters covered, taken after Kilich Daralu's announcement as the uh, presidential candidate for the joint six-party opposition bloc. Uh, they all show him beating Erdogan by double digits, anywhere from 10 to 14 points. There was a fourth poll that was apparently taken just prior to the announcement. I mean, everybody knew it was going to be uh, Kilich Daralu in the days leading up to it. So it's, it, you know, it wasn't like uh, the unveiling was a big uh, development. Uh, that one also showed him winning by, I think, about 13 points. Uh, in all of these polls, Kilich Daralu polls above 50%. Uh, which is the threshold needed to avoid a runoff. Uh, none of this is is dispositive. Obviously, the polls could be wrong. Uh, there's a lot of campaigning that has to be done, and Turkish elections are uh, kind of firmly in the uh, free but not fair category. Erdogan will use every lever that he has at his disposal to prevent the opposition from getting its message out uh, and making sure that his message does get out. So there's a lot that that could change here, but uh, I would say it's not looking good for Erdogan, and it's not looking good for his parliamentary coalition, the AKP-MHP uh, coalition. They're polling consistently about five to ten points behind the Kilish Darulu bloc, that, that opposition bloc, uh, which comes in somewhere in the 40s, between 43 and 47 percent in these polls. Uh, the uh, Erdogan's coalition comes in around 37 to 39 percent. Uh, the other major opposition party, the HDP, which is more leftist and predominantly Kurdish, polls around 10 to 12 percent, which is should be uh, more than enough to get it into parliament to meet the threshold to be seated. And HDP could, could I think, on, on big matters at least, uh, you know, where where it would be opposing uh, AKP, MHP, uh, the, the HDP party could be expected to align, broadly speaking, with the rest of the opposition. So that uh, would give them functionally a, a majority in parliament if those results hold up, if that polling is accurate. So, uh, yeah, just uh, not a pretty picture for for Erdogan, I guess, uh, as the, the election is about two months away at this point. Does this mean anything more generally for Turkish politics? 
Uh, it could mean a, a lot of things. I don't, I don't want to speculate too much because, uh, you know, again, it's not, nothing is set in stone, but, you know, it couldn't, could have ramifications for a uh, diplomatic opening with Syria. It could have serious ramifications uh, in terms of the role that Turkey has been playing with respect to the, the war in Ukraine. Uh, it could have uh, repercussions in terms of relation, Turkey's relationship with the United States, certainly. Uh, and, and the biggest thing, I guess, the biggest current thing would be uh, whether or not Sweden and Finland uh, are ever going to get into NATO. Finland is certainly running ahead of Sweden at this point. But, um, you know, the, the beef that Turkey has with Sweden and, and you know, the fact that Erdogan and, and his government keep saying they're not going to support Sweden's membership, that that could, you know, Kilistarlu may be more amenable. Uh, and if the parliament certainly is controlled by the opposition uh, instead of uh, AKP, MHP, um, it could be a more favorable environment for Sweden as well uh, in, in terms of getting into NATO. Thanks, Derek. Let's move on now to the negotiations between Colombia and the ELN. Uh, yes. So uh, as people undoubtedly know, uh, Colombian President Gustavo Petro came into office with a plan to essentially offer amnesties, peace deals to most uh, of Colombia's major armed groups. There's some good news and bad news on that front. Uh, this week. Uh, the good news is that negotiations between the Colombian government and the National Liberation Army, the ELN, which is the largest of Colombia's remaining rebel groups, uh, seem to be going well. They wrapped up uh, a second round of peace talks uh, on Friday uh, in Mexico. Uh, both sides expressed uh, satisfaction with how things are going. They, they said they, they seem to indicate that they've teed up a potential ceasefire, which would be the, the big step that uh, they haven't yet taken, uh, but they seem to have, have laid the groundwork, or they seem to think they've laid the groundwork to do so. There will be a third round of talks in Cuba. I don't think a date has been set uh, for those talks yet, but the um, you know obvious first item on the agenda, I would think, uh, would be actualizing a ceasefire. So that's uh, certainly good news for a country that is uh, has more armed insurrections than... Uh, uh, I think uh, any country could possibly manage. The bad news is that uh, another one of these groups, the Clan del Golfo, which is Colombia's biggest just out-and-out criminal gang, drug traffickers, etc., uh, Petro has accused them of breaking their ceasefire with his government. Uh, he says they, they blew up, destroyed an aqueduct in Antioquia uh, Department or Antioquia Province, possibly uh, in league with uh, some some illegal kind of wildcat gold miners uh, who have been staging a bit of an insurgency because Petro's government is trying to shut them down uh, in that part of the country. Uh, so that that would be a step back, certainly. Uh, this is another one of the groups alongside ELN that, that Petro has been uh, eager to, I think, bring an end to their... Uh, their militancy and and uh, you know try to focus on uh, some kind of a peace deal. So if that's backsliding and Petro has made it clear that if they're back to carrying out uh, acts of violence, he's not going to negotiate with them. So that that would be a a, a bit of a step back. Uh, there was apparently a drone shot down over the Black Sea. Derek, tell us about that. Yeah, on Tuesday, a U.S. Uh, Reaper drone uh, that was apparently uh, supposedly on a surveillance mission 
over the Black Sea, was intercepted by two Russian fighters. Uh, the Russian fighters were told uh, f- dumped gasoline on the drone in an effort to to kind of short out its camera or block its camera, I guess, or its sensors. Uh, and uh, then, according to the U.S., at least, engaged in some high-risk uh, kind of buzzing maneuvers, uh, again, probably to disrupt the drone. At one point during one of these maneuvers, uh, it seems, and the U.S. government has now released video that supposedly shows this happening, uh, The uh, one of the Russian planes collided with the propeller uh, on the uh, drone, uh, sending the drone into the Black Sea. Um, it's wreckage. Uh, I mean, I'm, I think they've ascertained roughly where it is. The Russians say they're going to try to salvage the wreckage, uh, the U.S. doesn't seem to think that's uh, possible because of where it went down uh, and the, the conditions there. But um, th- there was some back and forth uh, Tuesday and Wednesday between the Russians and the U.S. The Russians insisted that uh, their, their pilots didn't do anything risky. They didn't collide with the, the, the drone. Uh, it was the drone itself that made some kind of you know, weird maneuver and then wound up crashing. Uh, but as I say, the the Biden administration or the U.S. Uh, military has released video purportedly showing the Russians uh, crashing into this thing. I don't think it was intentional. I mean, a, a lot of the engagement was obviously intentional, uh, but I don't think the collision was intentional because that would be, uh, you know, I mean, that, that Russian plane could very easily have come down as well. Uh, you know, why would you uh, risk your own life to take down a drone? I don't think that's... Uh, realistic uh but nevertheless well, I would, it's another Derek, well I, yeah I, mean, I, I didn't want to speak for you i'm sorry i apologize you know it is obviously a source of tension uh it's unmanned so there's no so that that's uh, i think good although uh from what i hear that the drone was just uh, just a few days from retirement so uh you know condolences to its family um the uh but but yeah, there doesn't seem to be any you know kind of lingering here. The, I'm the, imagining like a McBain drone, like the yeah, drones exactly. talking to the right, other drones. Right. I just bought a new balloon. <laughs> just bought a new to, boat, you know. Yeah. yeah oh you know, God, like, it's called the drone forever. We're gonna, and we're gonna we go. you know float around the world. Yeah. And then, you know, tragically, <laughs> little Susie's short. growing up. Okay, sorry. Go um, back to it. Yeah, exactly. So you know that's that. Obviously, none of that comes into play. Uh, nothing that would, would, you know, if this involved a human casualty, which would be much more serious. Uh, nevertheless, I think, you know, uh, these patrols happen and they're going to continue to happen uh, as relations between Russia and the U.S. get worse. Uh, they're happening in the Black Sea. They'll happen over Syria. They'll happen, uh, you know, maybe over uh, Ukrainian airspace, possibly. I don't know. Uh but anyway, it's, it's, it's not a good situation, uh, is what I'm saying. Not that anybody needs me to tell them that, but uh, this is just uh, m- more evidence of, of the tension that exists in this relationship uh, at the present time. Thanks, Derek. Let's uh, talk a little bit about Ukraine, and let's start with um, Bakhmut. Yes, uh, Bakhmut is effectively, uh, or the eastern part of Bakhmut, I should say, is effectively in Russian hands now. Uh, that's been confirmed uh, more or less by the UK military, for example, the UK Defense Ministry uh, says it's you know it's seen satellites and, and indications that the Russians have taken uh, all of Bakhmut east of the Bakhmutka River. Um, they don't seem to have gotten a foothold on the other side of the river yet. Uh, the Ukrainians destroyed all the bridges across uh, the river. So, you know, it's obviously uh, 
a fairly difficult maneuver under fire to uh, to get across the river to the other side of the the city. Uh, but there, most of the fighting is now focused, I think, on the center of the city. I mean, people know Bakhmut has been the focus of the fighting for several weeks now. Uh, the Ukrainians are insisting uh, on continuing to defend it for, uh, I, I would say, dubious strategical, uh, strategic uh, goals. They, they, I don't know that the city itself is that important, uh, but they seem to be intent on kind of trying to wear the Russians out uh, and particularly the Wagner group, the, the, the mercenary group, which has been um, leading the charge here literally with uh, human waves, supposedly, of, of the fighters that they, you know, especially these fighters that they've been recruiting out of prison. Uh, I think the Ukrainians feel uh, like they, they, would, they would like to uh, do enough, cause Wagner enough loss here that it's no longer a factor uh, for the rest of the war. I don't know how realistic that is, but that that's the only thing that makes sense to me in terms of uh, how hard they're defending it. And they must be losing, you know, uh, uh, men and materiel fairly uh, heavily as well. I mean, I'm sure the Russians are, uh, you know, are, it's costing the Russians, but I'm sure it's costing the Ukrainians as well. And of course, Ukraine has uh, fewer reserves. Uh, do, do you see anything as changing in the war writ large? Uh, no, not really. Uh, th this has been the, this fight in, in the, in Donetsk, there is a, another Russian, uh, offensive that seems to be underway in Luhansk Oblast, which is a little bit to the North. Um, but that doesn't seem to be making, uh, uh much progress either. So it's really just still this grinding, uh, focus on, on this relatively small piece of the front line, uh, in the East. Uh, the thing that, that may be changing is the Black Sea Grain Initiative, uh, which uh, is up for renewal again. Uh, this, this was uh, an agreement that the, the Turkey and the UN uh, brokered in July of last year uh, to allow Ukraine to uh, start shipping grain again through the Black Sea. Uh, it had an initial 120-day period. The Russians agreed at the end of that period to extend it again for another 120 days. They're now uh, saying they're only willing to extend it. They'll only be willing to extend it for 60 days. Uh, this next time, uh, the, that second 120-day period is almost up. So they're, they're talking about 60 days, which is uh, not great from the standpoint of uh, certainty for, let's say, companies that want to uh, do contracts to ship Ukrainian grain. Uh, they're not going to be comfortable, presumably, doing anything that's uh, longer than 60 days in the future, which which uh, sets up some some logistical problems and, and could be, you know, could lead to, again, increased food prices and, and, you know, a whole host of effects, uh, that, that we've seen already from this conflict. Uh, the Russians still want more to be done to protect their own food exports. And that's food related exports, I should say, cause that includes things like fertilizer, uh, which are all still being hampered by us sanctions, despite the, you know, supposed, exemptions for humanitarian goods the the banking sanctions in particular i think uh, are preventing russia from from exporting this stuff so they're still demanding that the un uh, do more to to try and improve that situation uh, and and that's the reason uh, i think uh, basically that they're only willing to extend it for a relatively short period of time thanks derek and now let's talk about what i think is probably the biggest news story of the week which is the saudi iran diplomatic agreement 
Yes. Uh, so this was a finalized, well, finalized. It's the beginning of a process. It's not really the end. But uh, the deal came together on Friday. Uh, Saudi and Iranian representatives in China uh, agreed to restore uh, their bilateral diplomatic relations. They agreed to basically open uh, their embassies again. They've been closed since 2016. Um in, a, in an agreement that was brokered by the Chinese government, uh, in addition to the embassies, they've agreed to uh, re- resuscitate a couple of past agreements. There was a 2001 agreement uh, on kind of regional security issues. Uh, there was a 1998 agreement that covered a, a whole host of things, uh, commercial contacts, cultural exchanges, uh, you know, a lot of things of, of that nature. They've also agreed to try to revive that. Potentially, the, the ramifications of this could be huge, uh, both in terms of uh, the Saudis and the Iranians finally talking to one another again. There are a lot of regional repercussions that could be uh, that could flow from that. Uh, also, China being the, the the broker here signals that maybe the Chinese government is taking a more active role in diplomacy and in, in kind of negotiating these types of agreements, uh, which could have huge global ramifications, not just in the Middle East. Um, I'm hesitant to to make huge pronouncements because this could all unravel at the drop of a hat at any point. I mean, the Saudis and the Iranians have a history of walking up to the line of normalizing relations and then you know pivoting and and rushing away from it um and even when they in periods when their relations have been normal in the sense that they've had diplomatic representation and uh, all the you know kind of institutional uh, features of a normal relationship they still have not gotten along with one another you know to to a great extent so there's this could not i mean it could mean a lot it could mean very little could mean nothing at all anything you know it's it's only been a few days really since uh the agreement so uh you know anything is is kind of uh up for grabs at this point but it, it is i think on the chinese side uh in terms of the role that they played uh is a already a significant development it remains to be seen i would say how significant uh it is thanks derek and let's move on to our final topic which is the new cold war new cold war yeah, so there's a couple of things to talk about here. Um, one is uh, the AUKUS uh, agreement. Uh, on Monday, Joe Biden welcomed the Prime Minister of Australia, Anthony Albanese, and the Prime Minister of the UK, Rishi Sunak, uh, for an event to sort of kick off the uh, so-called AUKUS initiative, uh, the Australia-UK-US initiative. Uh, this was announced you know, some time ago, but... Uh, they hadn't really done anything yet. The deal, uh, I believe we may have talked about last week, I can't remember. Uh, The deal uh, involves uh, an Australian uh, agreement to purchase at least three and as many as five Virginia-class nuclear attack submarines from the U.S. uh, over the course of the next, let's say, decade plus, maybe the next 15 years. Um, and at the same time to allow the U.S. to bring its nuclear attack submarines to Australia to, to base them uh, at Australian ports or forward deploy them to Australian ports, which is you know very convenient if one were uh, interested in, say, patrolling the South China Sea or patrolling areas that uh, the Chinese Navy gets into at times. Longer term, there is a plan uh, for all three countries to collaborate in the uh, the production of a brand new 
line, a brand new class of attack submarines uh, that seems a little more nebulous. Uh, but these initial uh, things, the uh, the very lucrative purchase of these uh, attack submarines, which would be very good for uh, U.S. contractors, and the the forward basing, which the U.S. military undoubtedly loves, uh, those things will will definitely, uh, I think, uh, come together. Uh, as for the rest of it, it's that's a ways off. Uh, and let's also talk about the Japan South Korea meeting. Yes, uh, there's actually a couple of things we can we can mention here. The Japan South Korea meeting, um, and also Honduras. We could talk about that as well. Uh, but uh, the Japanese uh, and South Korean governments are uh, trying to get along again. Uh, I think we talked last week about uh, South Korean President Yoon Suk Yeol's uh, plan to uh, kind of uh, compensate victims of forced labor uh, during the Japanese occupation uh, of Korea, South Korea during uh, or South Korea uh, during World War II, uh, with uh, essentially South Korean money. So they wouldn't it wouldn't require anything of the Japanese companies that were involved. It wouldn't require them to contribute. It wouldn't require them to apologize or anything of this nature. Uh, this has long been a major the major sticking point in the South Korean Japanese relationship reparations for this period. Uh, Yoon's offer, which is similar to a proposal that was made several years ago that, that Yoon's predecessor, uh, Moon Jae-in, uh, nixed because he didn't feel it was fair, it would basically remove that constraint. It's already proving to be very unpopular, uh, at least according to polling uh, in South Korea, because, again, it doesn't uh, require anything of, of the perpetrator of these, uh, these atrocities. Uh, nevertheless, it's intended uh, on Yoon's part to uh, open a pathway to improve relations with Japan in the face of uh, South Korea's problems with North Korea and uh, in the face of, uh, I think, South Korea's desire to be more useful to the United States when it comes to China, the the U.S. Is, has been thrilled with this uh, plan that Yoon has proposed. The Biden administration has been praising it. Uh, it gets if it gets South Korea and Japan on the same page, that all the better to uh, you know do our contain China plan, or, uh, because both of those countries are pillars of that that goal. Uh, Yoon visited uh, Japan on Thursday for a summit uh, with Japanese Prime Minister Kishida Fumio. Uh, they seem to get along. They agreed to uh, drop a mutual trade uh, dispute that the two countries have been engaged in for a few years now. So that's another uh, step forward potentially in improving their relationship. So again, I mean, it's it's all kind of uh, something that locks into place from uh, from the U.S. perspective. Uh, the other new Cold War thing to to note is that Giomar Castro, the president of Honduras declared on Twitter on Tuesday that her government is going to begin the process of transferring diplomatic recognition from Taiwan to China, to mainland China. Uh, She had talked about doing this during the 2021 presidential campaign, but then kind of dropped it, downplayed it. Um, She's now brought it back. If if Honduras, assuming Honduras does go through with this, it'll leave Taiwan with only 13 states uh, that still recognize it diplomatically. Although, Micronesia, the Federated States of Micronesia, is considering apparently uh, switching its recognition from mainland China to Taiwan, so that could go back up to 14 uh, at some point. But uh, Castro's foreign minister, uh, Eduardo Enrique Reina, uh, talked on Wednesday about the decision. He said it was pragmatic. It wasn't based in ideology, apparently. 
uh, Reina has been talking to or kind of approaching Taiwanese officials about increasing their annual aid to Honduras, which sits at about $100 million uh, per year right now, and about restructuring some $600 million in debt that Honduras owes to Taiwan, and, and he didn't get uh, apparently a favorable response to these things. Now, Taiwan's foreign ministry denies that, but uh, this is what Reina is saying. It's, it's, it, I mean, it's very nakedly, you know, kind of dollars and cents for, for countries that are considering uh, whether to uh, maintain ties with Taiwan or, or go to, to Beijing. Um, and and you know, vice versa, really, the, the Micronesian issue is, is also about uh, seeing what kind of a deal they can get out of Taiwan for uh, in terms of aid and support, uh, but that's uh, you know that's one last uh, little thing. I haven't seen any reaction from the Biden administration. Uh, I can't imagine they'll be particularly happy about it. Uh, what they might do to Honduras, uh, I, I I don't know. They they can't seemingly one would assume given how how big of political football uh, Central American migration at the southern U.S. border has become. Uh, I don't know that they want to punish Honduras too heavily and create another, you know, spark for uh, migration uh, for for people to, uh, you know, be seeking asylum in the U.S., but who knows. Thanks, Derek. And before we go, I want to remind everyone to please check out Foreign Exchanges, subscribe. More importantly, pay for your subscription because without Foreign Exchanges, we don't have these news updates. So again, thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you soon. Bye. Thanks, Danny. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.